0: It's Central Time. I'm Rob Ferret. You're with us here on the Ideas Network. Dane County is starting a wide-scale composting program this year, partnering with Purple Cow Organics, a company that will accept the county's food waste. In 2020, Wisconsinites threw away over 850,000 tons of food waste. About 15% of that was still edible. That's according to an estimate from the state DNR. Among other concerns, food in landfills emits methane, a greenhouse gas that's way more destructive than carbon dioxide, unit for unit. We're talking about Dane County's new composting program, and you could join in at 800-642-1234. Do you compost maybe in your own backyard? Would you want to see some kind of composting uh, program in your community, maybe curbside pickup or a drop-off site? Have you lived in a community that's had one of those options? Join in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234 or email ideas at WPR.org. Alex Thomas is the Carbon Offset Program Manager at the Dane County Department of Waste and Renewables. Alex, welcome to Central Time.
1: Hi, thanks for having me.
0: Talk us through, Alex, how this uh, composting program is going to work.
1: Yeah, so this composting program has been something that's been in the works for a while. Um, Obviously, as you highlighted at the top of the hour, there's a lot of uh, need for food waste diversion and for um, trying to find a, a sustainable outlet for that. And so this has been something that the county has been eyeing for a long time. Uh, for Moving forward, what we're going to be doing is with our agreement with Purple Cow, we're going to be able to start taking uh, yard, large amounts of yard waste to that facility. And then for the first time in a long time, uh, they're going to be able to start accepting food waste as well. So um, we're going to be excited to start building that program on a sustainable scale uh, and really start targeting, uh, diverting that material from, from the landfill.
0: For a Dane County resident, uh, what can they do and when can they do it?
1: Yeah. So um, for starters, we're going to start on, on a large scale for commercial customers, um, and we'll be working our way to, to down to residential as we go. Um, unfortunately, though, we did just ha- put out the news this week that um, we did ex- uh, tentatively awarded a USDA grant for food waste drop-off kiosks. So that is something that the city of Madison currently runs uh, through their farmer's market program. They have a food waste drop off kiosk that they run. um, And the county is now having funding in place to expand that program and start working throughout the county for drop off. So we'll be working on establishing that kind of network. um, So that would be something that people can gather their food waste, their food scraps, and be able to drop it off in a centralized location so that we can make sure it gets composted.
0: Give us more of a sense of the why. Why does the county see this as a need now?
1: Yeah. um, So like I said, this has been a target and on the agenda for the county for a long time, and we're excited to start moving forward on it. Um, The climate impacts of diverting food waste from the landfill are are, are really sizable. Um, You know, when the food waste enters the landfill and it enters into this anoxic environment, right, produces methane, which is 20 times as potent of a greenhouse gas as carbon dioxide. So the more we can keep out of that and more that we can keep from entering the air because we can't collect everything and then um the better use of our landfill space as well so if we can keep that material repurpose it into uh sustainable soil carbon and and a compost product that helps our soil health uh, while maintaining the airspace in our landfills um, that's kind of a win-win all around so
0: what ends up happening with all of that compost
1: uh, yeah, so that's one of the benefits of our partnership with Purple Cow as part of this agreement. Um, they currently create a stable compost product that they sell nationwide and even internationally. Um, and so this will be a part of their profile. Um, the county does have the right to buy some of that compost back, and we'll be looking at doing that down the line once we get the program up and running. Um, but they're, they're creating a compost with it, and they're you're bringing it to farmers and agricultural businesses across the nation right now.
0: Alex Thomas is with us from the Dane County Department of Waste and Renewables talking about their new countywide composting efforts. You can join in with your questions or maybe your personal composting experiences at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. Alex, I know when we do, you know, recycling drop-off, we got to be careful and a little fussy about what we put in it. As I understand it, with composting programs like this, that's even more important. Can you talk about the challenges of contamination if people are putting in the wrong stuff?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So um, this is why we're building the program kind of on a slow but steady kind of scale. Um, If the wrong thing enters into your food waste stream and we try and break that down, what we're trying to do is take the banana peels and the orange peels and your coffee grounds. We're trying to break that down into a stable soil amendment. If we do that with something that's not meant to break down, like a piece of plastic like a plastic cup or a paper paper cup that's got like a poly liner on it, um, that ends up as contamination or microplastics. And so um, just one cup can end up contaminating a whole load of, of fresh compost. And so that's why it's even more important and even more of a scrutiny about what makes it into that system. You know, recycling, we've got the benefit of being able to pick out at least some of that stuff that's not supposed to be in here, composting, if anything makes it through, um, it can just be kind of a a cascading effect down the line.
0: And how are you going to communicate with, as you mentioned, first commercial uh, waste suppliers and then residential people? How are you going to communicate with people to say, yeah, do this, but don't give us that?
1: (laughs) Yeah, yep. Um, So we'll be expanding our our educational efforts from the county uh, as we launch these programs and making sure that we've got Full list built out of what we can accept and what we can accept uh, can accept and can't accept. Um, we'll be working with um, also accountability accountability for each one that of these loads that are brought to our purple cow partner. Um, so if somebody starts bringing in stuff that they can't accept and that are contaminating loads and those kinds of things, um, we're going to be really proactive about making sure we identify those right away. Bring everybody up to speed on what's supposed to be there and what can't be there and uh, really kind of building the program in stages like that
0: spray on a caller at 800-642-1234 rachel is with us in bloomfield rachel hi
2: hi there um yeah i just wanted to um say that you know we're a little bit more rural but we have been composting most of our lives um and we just use the simple three bay method, um, introducing a little bit of woody matter and um, some different things with the food scraps. And so I think it's a lot easier than people realize with the different systems. Um, and then I also wanted to say that it has significantly changed how we um, deal with and throw away our garbage. We only have to use a little grocery bag. We don't buy grocery bags or sorry garbage bags from the store and um,
0: uh, Rachel I got, I think we lost Rachel there but Alex a, a couple of things there first of all I don't I assume you're not trying to compete with uh, people's backyard composting efforts if they want to keep doing that you're all for it I'm going to guess
1: Yep absolutely backyard composting is something I do as well um and and you know people are having a successful system with that all for it um you know I I use it to feed my raised garden beds and things like that so um don't definitely don't want to compete with that
0: And then Rachel mentioned how much less garbage we throw away when we factor out uh, all the food waste and things like that. And and you mentioned you compost yourself. Do you notice that kind of difference that Rachel did?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I noticed, too, um, I even take up my trash a lot less because the thing that breaks down and makes trash so smelly is those organics. So if I keep those in my compost pile and break them down in a more managed style, my garbage You know, my trash garbage doesn't smell as bad and I don't have to take it out as often and those kinds of things for sure.
0: Thanks again for that call. Rachel and I just happened to be visiting my brother in San Francisco a few days back where they have, you know, curbside pickup of compost. And now that is a very densely populated place, maybe easier to pull off. Is that being viewed as a possibility for the future uh, in Dane County or in parts of Dane County?
1: Yeah. You know, there have been parts of Dane County that have explored that in the past and have, you know, hit different roadblocks as they started to launch those programs. Um, you know, some of those programs, as they've said, when they launched them, you know, kind of dove right into the deep end. Um, that might be an ultimate goal of where we might be heading with some of these programs, depending on the municipality and if it's appropriate. Um, but when it comes to that starting point. Um, We do want to make sure that we roll things out with that conscious education and making sure that people know what's supposed to go when and where instead of seeing it as another bin. And um, so that might be an eventual goal. But right now, yeah, we're really glad to be starting with more of an intentional drop off location.
0: Alex, we'll leave it there. Thanks again for joining us.
1: Yeah, thank you very much.
0: Alex Thomas is the Carbon Offset Program Manager at the Dane County Department of Waste and Renewables. He talked to us about the county's new composting program. Coming up, we'll take it statewide and hear from a DNR expert about the benefits of composting, what you can do at home as well. You could join in at 800-642-1234. Do you compost either maybe in your backyard or as part of a community effort? Tell us about it. Would you like a program like this in your community? Join in now at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. We'll continue the conversation coming up here on Central Time. You're listening to Central Time. I'm Rob Ferret. We continue our conversation about composting. As we just heard, Dane County is putting a new compost program into action. Now we'll hear from the state DNR about composting opportunities around Wisconsin, including home composting. And you can join in at 800-642-1234. Do you compost? Do you have questions about uh, what works, what doesn't? Do you need some advice or do you have some advice to share based on your own experience? Call in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. Casey Krasinski is coordinator for waste and materials management at the Wisconsin Department of Natural Resources. Casey, thanks a lot for joining us.
3: Thanks for having me. A
0: lot of people, I think, compost in their backyards, use it for their gardens, maybe on their farms. Can you talk about the benefits of uh, composting in Wisconsin when you put together all these different efforts?
3: Absolutely. Um, Composting has great benefits. Um, One, you know, Alex touched on the the fact that when we put food waste in the landfill, um, that landfill is compacted to save space. And so all of the oxygen is pushed out. And so when the food waste breaks down in that environment, uh, the byproduct, one of the byproducts is methane, which is a greenhouse gas that's at least 20, 28 times more potent than CO2. So um, by composting instead in an in oxygen-rich environment, um, we are uh, reducing our greenhouse gas emissions, and we're also saving all of that landfill space to use it for items that are more concerning. Um, we don't want to spend any more space in Wisconsin um, just to hold our, our waste, um, whereas compost, we can then you know continue to clear out the space that we're using, that footprint, Um, rather than it building up over time. And then also finished compost has a great uh, benefit um, when you use it as a soil additive. It um, provides nutrients, so you don't need to use as much fertilizer. And it also is really great at holding water. Um, And so you need to water less when it's added uh, to soils.
0: Now, I've got a bin where I live right now for the next couple of weeks. A uh, lot. Some people might do. We heard a three bay method from someone. There's different ways to compost. Are there general rules? And I'm guessing you get asked these questions uh, all the time, Casey, about yes, you could put that in. No, you can't put that in. What are some of the most common uh, materials that people might wonder about?
3: Sure. Uh, So for at home composting, um, because your piles are a little smaller, you actually do have slightly different rules than these large scale industrial composts. Um, And so for at home composting, you um, are going to want to add um, vegetable peels and trimmings, fruit peels. Uh, your eggshells, coffee grounds, and tea leaves. Um, you can add grains as long as there's not fats or sauces or oils on them. Um, and you can uh, also add food-soiled paper products if you you know, have a, a napkin that uh, or a paper towel, things like that. And then, of course, your yard trimmings as well. Um, so garden debris, leaves, brush, and... Um, and grass clippings, things like that, um, can all go in your home compost. Uh, Once you get into those larger scale composts, um, you'll really want to check what what their rules are for what you can and can't add, because it's gonna depend on the equipment they have, but it's possible um, that they can take um, some meat and dairy um, that you'll want to keep out of your at-home compost just because, again, it doesn't get as hot. And uh, I guess I'll call it the same thing, for your at-home compost, you want to um, be careful or avoid uh, adding even compostable uh, products to it. Um, those that compostable certification is for a large-scale industrial compost, um, and so uh, those won't really break down properly, uh, chemically and physically, in your small. Uh, scale home compost
0: I can vouch for that I tried a chip container one time that was labeled compostable that survived at least a couple years before I yanked it out and threw it away Um, now how about people may be wondering about uh, animal waste people would love to have a better way to get rid of that that home compost bin not you don't want that at all right
3: Uh, That's true. Um, So especially carnivorous animal waste, um, your dog or your cat that is, you know, the dog food has some animal product in it. Um, There's increased pathogens in that um, that we want to see go through a higher heat treatment. So uh, keeping that out of your home compost is recommended.
0: We are talking to Casey Krasinski for the Wisconsin DNR, coordinator there for the Waste and Materials Management Program. We are talking about composting. We have many callers. Let's talk to some of them. Sarah is with us in Green Bay. Sarah, hi. Hi.
2: Hi. Um, I just wanted to put uh, a vote of confidence into the Green Bay Compost, which is a company that was started about three or four years ago. Um, and he, he has been collecting my compost for uh, well over a year. Um, And I am really impressed with it. And two things I learned from myself is that I couldn't believe how much I was throwing out. And it really has stopped me from buying too much, um, which has, I think, saved me more money in shopping than I actually pay for the uh, monthly service. And he's really reliable. He's really on time. Um, he's taught me a lot about what is compostable and what isn't and for Christmas I bought (laughs) I bought soil and gave it to all my uh, friends who are gardeners (laughs) and they were all delighted to get it so I um, and I know he's trying to expand and for me I just don't want to do the work I can't add one more thing to my to-do list (laughs) Um, and this makes me feel like I'm helping the environment. I've cut down on my waste, and it, it's just a good thing overall. And I'm helping a new industry here in Green Bay with a very fine young man who's working very hard.
0: Interesting, Sarah. Thanks a lot for sharing that. And Casey, uh, we've talked about you know, a, a county-level service. Uh, we've talked about individual backyard composters. Are we seeing things like that? It sounds like a kind of private uh, subscription service to get your compost picked up. Are you seeing private offerings like that in, around the state?
3: We are. I think a lot of people would be surprised by um, the coverage that Wisconsin has for it. It's not just, you know, in Milwaukee and Madison. Um, We have at least a dozen uh, companies around the state that we know of um, that are offering this type of subscription curbside service. Uh, If you go to dnr.wi.gov and search compost, you'll find our composting main page Um, which has a lot of tips and tools for Backyard, but also there's a link to subscription service providers that we're aware of. Um, And uh, you can look and see by your municipality if you have an offering there. Um, And then also, you know, if there's one that we're not aware of, you can reach out to us and let us know. Um, But uh, it's a great service. And I just really want to touch on something else your caller said, which I appreciate so much. I did the same thing when I started separating my uh, food waste out. for composting is it really made me, um, notice how much food waste, um, you know, we are generating and, um, just bringing attention to it. The average household back in 2018, it was estimated, um, throws away almost in the U S it throws away almost $2,000 worth of food each year. um, that they're purchasing. So you can save a lot of money and make an even bigger environmental impact just by drawing attention to your food waste when you start sorting it out.
0: Thanks for that call, Sarah. Corey joins us now in Green Bay. Corey, hi. Hi. Very nice
4: to have you have me on. I'm actually the gentleman who runs Greener Bay Compost in Green oh. Bay, that very nice subscriber of our Sarah calling. Are your in. ears burning, burning there? there? <laughs> Yeah, but I want to say hi to Sarah, and actually, one of my other subscribers tipped me off that you were having this conversation, <laughs> said I should call in, so I'm calling in.
0: Yeah, so how did you get into the business of uh, picking up people's compost?
4: Well, I was inspired by a very nice young lady in upstate New York through her Instagram. I found out that she was essentially going to have bags or liners inside of them, picking up people's food scraps basically she was composting for people who either can't or don't want to compost on their own either they're disabled or they're just like a busy working mom and dad you know they're like the rest of us they've got other things to do but they still want to lead a more sustainable life um i saw what she was doing a, oh.
0: a- we're losing your phone line, Corey, but I think we get the gist uh thanks a lot for calling in, Casey. It sounds like one way or another people are seeing a need for composting and and trying to find ways to uh to fill the gap where composting isn't happening right now.
3: Yes, it's so exciting to see you know businesses taking that opportunity um counties and municipalities looking we are seeing an increase in grant funding for this type of program so if it's not something that's available to you right now you know reach out tell your municipality that it's something you're interested in or you know tell the you know grocery stores and uh, restaurants that you frequent that it's something that you'd like to see and hopefully we can encourage it to keep happening around the state.
0: Thanks for calling in Corey. Casey uh let's get back to the home composter advice for a bit people who've composted at home may find over time that their compost is getting a weird smell. And I've, I've heard that it's, you know, based on the composition, if you've got too much fresh stuff, not enough dry stuff, how do we keep our compost, uh, in a harmonious
5: balance?
3: That's a great question. And, um, You know something you're going to have to play around with a little is in when you start composting. Um, But your goal is to have an even mix or uh, have a good mix of what are called composting browns or carbon-rich materials and um, composting greens, um, nicknamed composting greens, which are nitrogen-rich materials. Um, And so, composting browns can be things like dried leaves and wood chips and uh, brush. And then your greens are, your food waste are primarily going to be green. So would uh, fresh grass clippings. Um, and so if you feel like your compost is getting smelly um, or um, that it's heating up really fast um, before everything kind of breaks down, um, you probably have a little bit too much nitrogen rich material and you're going to want to add some carbon rich material. Um, If it seems like nothing's really changing, you're probably going to want to add some nitrogen-rich material to help it heat up it and go. And, um, you know, it's not something to be intimidated by. It's just something that um, you'll want to work through based on the waste you're generating.
0: Casey, we'll leave it there. Thanks again for joining us. Thank you. Casey Krasinski is a coordinator for the Waste and Materials Management Program at Wisconsin's DNR. She talked to us about composting around the state from your backyard to bigger projects in communities around Wisconsin. I'm Rob Ferret. Stick around. There's more to come on Central Time here on the Ideas Network. This is Central Time. I'm Rob Ferrett. Now, are college athletes employees, and can they unionize? In one key labor ruling, the answers are yes and yes. A regional director of the National Labor Relations Board ruled this week that men's basketball players at Dartmouth College should be considered employees of the school, and as a result, they're eligible to form a labor union. The NCAA and Dartmouth are expected to appeal the decision. Players have not set a date yet for a potential vote to form a union. But the NLRB regional director gave an answer to one of the great debates in college sports. Are student-athletes truly unpaid amateurs? Or do they provide labor that is compensated in ways that qualify as employment? What happens next with the Dartmouth men's basketball team has the potential to change the landscape of college sports even more. And our next guest is here to help us understand where things go from here. You could join in at 800-642-1234. Do you think college athletes should be considered employees of their schools and treated accordingly? Should they be allowed to unionize if they want to? What questions do you have about this ruling and the state of labor in college sports? Join in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234 or email ideas at WPR.org. Michael Leroy is Professor of Labor and Employment Relations and an affiliated member of the College of Law faculty at the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign. Michael, thanks a lot for joining us today.
6: Hi, Rob. Happy to join you.
0: Can you tell us a little more about this ruling? It's an NLRB regional director. It's not at the top of the charts here, but what is this ruling? What does it mean?
6: Well, I think the way you set it up is accurate. For perspective, Um This is the second time we've had a regional director make this kind of ruling. Uh, We had a Chicago uh, regional director similarly rule in 2014 when Northwestern's football team filed a petition for a union representation election. You spelled out there's an appellate process. In the Northwestern case, it went to the full five-member labor board in Washington, and they unanimously voted that they don't have jurisdiction of the matter. It's not that they ruled on the employee or amateur issues per se, because the big 10 had only one um, private school at that time uh, and the rest were public and Rob crucially because the national labor relations act only extends to public employers and public employees. It was basically a moot point, whether Northwestern could unionize or not. If they went forward uh, with the union, the players would be paid Uh, They'd be subject to sanctions from the NCAA. Uh, The school would be subject to sanctions. And in any event, the board emphasized um, collective bargaining can't take place with one school. Now, what makes Dartmouth a different story 10 years later is it's in the Ivy League. The entire conference is private. The entire conference could unionize. There's no reason that you can't have a bargaining unit with the Ivy League. So in that sense, we're in new territory.
0: Now, things have changed a lot in college sports since that 2014 ruling, uh, including kinds of compensation athletes can get. What is different, if anything, about the landscape now as it relates to this ruling? It's it's a different time magically 10 years later. Well,
6: you're, you put it um, perfectly. I i in 2012, I published a law review article with the Wisconsin Law Review, um, and I, I imagined a process by which amateur athletes could bargain for non-wage matters, such as a grievance process, such as better health care, things of that nature that are not wages, uh, hours in terms of conditions of employment. And that really sort of reflects what you're saying is where we were 10 years ago, 12 years ago. But since that time, just in the Big Ten, uh, we have uh, a seven to $10 billion contract uh, for Big Ten schools. The conference has expanded to 18. Um, and there's just a totally different aura or feeling. Not to mention, we have name, image, and likeness or NIL rights for athletes. Um, and so there's money everywhere you turn uh, in college athletics. So, um, also, we had a 2021 Supreme Court decision. Uh, called the Alston case, A-L-S-T-O-N, in which the Supreme Court unanimously cast serious doubt on the amateurism model. So all of that means that even if we're looking at a very similar kind of union representation case uh, in Dartmouth as compared to Northwestern, the context has fundamentally shifted. There's no pretending anymore that big-time
0: college athletics is um, an amateur enterprise. Well, I'll pretend for a moment, I could see an argument going along these lines. Uh, they, go, they go to practice, these athletes, they play, they don't get an hourly wage. They don't have a salary. They don't have the kind of direct compensation I would think of in employee getting. So they're not really employees. Is that something that's been part of this argument?
6: Yes. I mean, that basically summarizes the NCAA's position. And for full disclosure, I should tell you, I, I filed a friend of the court brief in a different matter. Uh, on behalf of athletes, the case is Johnson versus uh, NCAA. Um, and it's a, a lawsuit by um, uh, Ralph Trey Johnson, a football player at Villanova, and other student athletes uh, in colleges and universities throughout the Northeast. They're alleging that they're misclassified as amateurs, that they're employees. Now, back to your observation, my brief um, in, informed the court that the test for an employee really comes down to six factors, the chief of which is control of somebody's time uh, when they are performing uh, a service that benefits uh, the, the supposed employer. There are other elements as well, um, but uh, it's, it's fundamentally a matter of control of time. Uh, And so I I do think um, we have uh, passed the threshold for ruling that at least some college athletes meet the standards for employment.
0: Michael Leroy is with us from the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign, professor of labor and employment relations there, talking about college athletes and their amateur status, a uh, labor relations board a ruling, a regional ruling says, well, maybe they are employees and could unionize if they want to. You could join in at 800 642 1234. That's 800 642 1234. Michael, one uh, point I want to dig into here now uh, Dartmouth, the school at the center of the story, private college. Uh, say, let's go here to Wisconsin, UW Madison, public college. If I'm hearing things right, This wouldn't this really wouldn't affect them because they're at the public college level. But say the Marquette University basketball team, a private school, this might affect them. Do I have that right?
6: It's perfectly understood. Um, You've got it. If I could add one more layer of um, um, understanding, separate from what you and I are talking about right now, the NLRB has a case uh, uh, pending before an administrative law judge involving the University of Southern California and the Pac-12 Conference and the NCAA. And in that case, the NLRB is testing out its theory that the conference and NCAA is a, are joint employers of the USC football team. Now, this concept mm. of joint employment, where the joint employer being the NCAA and a conference, is crucial To your question, because if that ruling comes out in favor of the NLRB, then if we shift our focus to UW-Madison, the Big Ten, by implication, and the NCAA, by implication, would be also um, joint employers of that public university. And so that's, that's in the mix here.
0: Let's go to our callers at 800-642-1234. Dwayne is with us in Westfield. Dwayne, hi. Hi, how you doing? Um, For years, I mean, the colleges have never allowed their
4: students to be paid to be professional athletes. And then, like you said, in that 2014 ruling, it's still, I mean, these people are getting millions. I mean, they're getting money paid from sponsors and so on and so forth. But... They're also still getting, like, scholarships and stuff. So – and you're saying also they're trying to unionize. It seems like they're trying to get everything they want early before they even get into the professional level. So why – I mean, they know they're going to make it into the professional level anyway, so why are they pushing for all this other free money that they're trying to get when other people are struggling through schools?
0: Dwayne, I got gotcha. you. And I think – uh the they there might be two different groups here, uh Michael, there might be some uh elite athletes in particular sports with prospects go into professional careers and very big scholarships uh and as a parent of a d three athlete, there are those who don't get those athletic scholarships and you know aren't looking at a professional career. There's a couple different categories involved in dwayne's question,
6: right. well, those are good distinctions. Dwayne has a really good question and a really good call so it. Dwayne's question boils down to what's your philosophy about what a student should be getting? I mean, we live in interesting times um, i I work on a college campus. Uh, some of the highest pe- uh, paid people in in my community are very probably um, basketball players and football players I, I don't have specific information. Um, I've done research on Nil. A different school has shared their database with me on Nil compensation. Their highest paid athlete is three hundred and fifty thousand dollars that 's more than most professors and most administrators make, and that kind of speaks to dwayne 's mm-hmm. point on the other hand, it, you know um, when you look at the legal test of employment, um, those things really don't matter and what I mean by that is you know people make the argument well um, many sports don't break even or make a profit. Um, the, the minimum wage law applies to uh, a, an employer, even if they're losing money. Uh, the, the The wage law applies even if somebody's getting wonderful bonuses, wonderful benefits. And, and that's sort of my answer back to Dwayne about all of that is true. If I could add one more interesting mm-hmm. observation to Dwayne's uh, re- really fine question. Um, in the early 1950s, uh, the South, uh, Southeastern Conference initiated for the first time um, the awarding of scholarships to athletes. Now today we look at that as just a basic part of the social contract between players and and schools at big, at at big institutions, not d three and d two as as you 've noted Rob but I would point out that that was considered um, a violation of NCAA rules. Um, that was considered pay-for-play, even though it was a scholarship. So my my point is that our definition of what is compensation and what is appropriate has shifted over time.
0: Dwayne, thanks for that call. We're talking to Michael Leroy, labor relations professor at the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign, looking at the potential for college athletes to unionize after a National Labor Relations Board ruling on men's basketball players at Dartmouth, You can join in at 800-642-1234. What do you think about the idea of college athletes being considered and treated as employees of the university they play for? Do you think players are being compensated fairly by schools? Do you think that uh, it should be more straightforward? Pay to play. Would that be okay? If you are or were a college athlete yourself, love to hear your perspective. Join in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234 or email ideas at WPR.org. We'll pick up the conversation coming up here on Central Time. You're listening to Central Time. I'm Rob Ferrett. We're picking up our talk with Michael Leroy, Professor of Labor and Employment Relations at the University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign. He's with us to talk about a ruling by a National Labor Relations Board regional director that that determined that the Dartmouth men's basketball team, the players are employees of the college, this ruling says, eligible to unionize if they want. You could join in with your questions, your thoughts on college athletes and athletics and compensation and amateur status at 800 642 one, two three, four that's eight hundred six four two one two, three, four. Let's go back to your calls now. Chris is with us in Fairchild. Hi, Chris.
4: Hi, so my question is um, I have no problem with these people being paid or you know compensated for their likeness, but at what point do we start discussing um, potentially divorcing college
6: athletics from academia? It seems like two competing business models and one kind of overshadowing the other. Why doesn't uh, these seem like minor leagues for uh, professional sports? So why doesn't the professional sports in some capacity take this up on their own
4: and? The rest of us can go to school for science or math or technology, what have you. What about divorcing these two from one another and having them be their own
0: separate entities? Chris, thanks for the call. Michael. Chris, that's a great
6: observation. Um, I happen to share your viewpoint. Uh, It's time to start thinking about that for the major uh, athletic programs. Um, to your point, um, I'm intrigued by the Green Bay Packers um, ownership model, which um, I, I'm a little out of my depth here, but as I understand it, it it's based on some concept of, of fan ownership. Um, but in any event, uh, the idea that I'm getting at is it, it's it's conceivable that you could, uh, instead of having an NIL model that um, uses donor support to fund uh, sort of a shadow payroll for large college football teams and basketball teams. Uh, why not have a joint venture where the university retains a 51% interest in the corporate entity, um, and the fans, uh, buy shares in the remaining 49%, uh, you license out, um, all the branding and the, um, um, uh, administration of the team, um, to uh, this uh, joint venture corporate entity. I would just observe too, uh, to to Chris's point here, um, on major college campuses, there are joint ventures that take place between public universities and private entities. They usually involve um, new technologies that the university's licensing and they're looking for a partner. It's not a strange concept that a university goes into business with a partner Uh, And they try to make money together. So I I think this idea has merit.
0: Thanks again for that call at 800-642-1234. Michael, I want to talk a little bit about what a unionized college sports team might look at. Now, Dartmouth, uh, this is is where this ruling was. They're not, I believe, a powerhouse basketball team. They may not ever get uh, paid money. If they unionize, though, what kind of things could they negotiate about with the university?
6: Well, I think um, the first thing that comes to my mind is negotiate for scholarships. This goes back to, I I think, Dwayne's call. Negotiate for a scholarship. They they can't buy rule. They can't get a scholarship, and they can't get cost of attendance. And at Dartmouth and other Ivy League schools, the cost of attending their schools is over $300,000 for four years. And interestingly, that wouldn't violate the NCAA's rules. But, you know, they could go after many other things. There are some not so obvious matters they could negotiate for. First of all, as employees, um, they would have the ability to seek um, an outside investigation if uh, they experienced racial harassment, uh, just as an illustration. There is, unfortunately, some degree of coaching mistreatment of athletes. Employees have more protections than non-employees, and uh, and so there are different things they can do. Um, they could also negotiate for benefits uh, for um, disabilities and injuries that last beyond their eligibility. Um, we have this idealized vision uh, of college athletics, but in fact, when college athletes uh, exhaust their eligibility, for the most part if they're injured if 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 they have a long term uh, nagging uh uh injury that impairs their ability to work or so forth they are on their own they don't have workers compensation they don't have disability insurance
0: now uh this would be a unique kind of workplace in that the whole team turns over every 4 years or so as players graduate and move on can you see that being in a, assuming we end up at a point where we have unionized College sports teams, how would that function?
6: Great question. Well, my answer to that is first of all, um, at least in the past year, we've seen reporting that the uh, typical Amazon fulfillment center has 150% turnover uh, in a year. Uh, And whether that's exactly right or not, I'm just rhetorically asking how many Amazon uh, fulfillment center workers work for four years continuously? My guess is it's a small number. Um, and, and then I would say, if you look at the NFL, the average career is three years, you know, certainly people like Patrick Mahomes um, are going to play for, uh, hopefully, you know, 15 years, but rosters turn over a lot. So the very fact that you, you've got this constant churn or turnover just as a function of eligibility really isn't all that much different than many other workplaces. Just think of your local uh, favorite coffee shop. I don't want to give a name, but whatever it is, do you see the same people there over a five-, six-year period? At least at my coffee shop, I don't see them at this, you know, I don't see the same folks. There's a lot of turnover there.
0: Looking into the future now, uh, something we haven't talked about much is the bizarre consolidation of conferences, the generation of these super conferences Might we end up with kind of two completely different answers to a lot of the questions we're talking about, one for the uh, so-called power uh, teams and one for everybody else? It feels like we're moving in that direction. It it feels like the current roster,
6: um, maybe the incoming roster of the 18 Big Ten schools, and and I think we're going to have 16 SEC schools, that gives you 34 schools that have – attracted about 75% of the top tier college football players in the current signing season. They've got the best TV contracts locked up. If you take a look around the professional leagues, they have 30 to 32 teams, 34 college teams make sense from a marketing standpoint. And um, with the money they're attracting um, you can envision uh, an employment model, a unionization model. And by the way, for those of us who are old enough to remember When unions um, entered into the picture for professional uh, athletics, there were dire predictions that they'll kill the sport, they'll kill Mm -hmm. fan interest. To the contrary, that hasn't occurred at all. These franchises are worth billions of dollars. Pick your sport, pick your team. We're talking billions, not millions. So I I do think we're going to see this uh, eventual separation between the SEC and Big Ten schools and the rest.
0: In our last few moments, Michael, we mentioned this Dartmouth case. You've brought up a couple others. What are you watching for next? What is the next shoe you're waiting for to drop here?
6: I, I'm curious to see if other Ivy League basketball players file a petition for representation. So Rob, if if, if only Dartmouth goes through with this, and let's just say, you know, the, the appeals result in victories for the, the the athletes, um you can't have a bargaining unit of one team. I mean, uh that there's no sports league um, that we have in this country that consists of one team. You have to have a league wide bargaining unit. So the very first thing I'm interested in seeing is uh, pick your next Ivy league school. Is there going to be one coming forward or not? I think that's going to be uh, very telling. The other thing that enters in here is politics we have a presidential election occurring. Uh, We have a pro labor board, a pro labor NLRB. Um, if we get a Republican nominee, we're going to get a, a, basically a pro-NCAA uh, labor board. That's just the way things are with the NLRB. Mm-hmm. When you get a Republican president, uh, you get a narrowing of employment rights. When you get a Democratic president, you get an expansion. So those are the, the near-term things that I'm interested in seeing.
0: Thanks to our guest, Michael Leroy, Professor of Labor and Employment Relations at the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign, looking at college athletes and whether their employees are able to unionize. (music) There's big news in the skies. A total solar eclipse will show up in the United States exactly two months from today. So why am I bringing it up now? Because if you want to see it, you're going to have to make some travel plans. According to NASA, there will be a total solar eclipse on April the 8th. That's a Monday, by the way. In a solar eclipse, the moon blocks the light of the sun for a selected part of the Earth. The eclipse is going to pass through parts of Mexico, the U.S., and Canada. Key words, parts of, as in not directly through Wisconsin. But you can catch it with a road trip. The path of the eclipse takes it through southern Illinois and a good chunk of Indiana. So if you're up for a drive, you could probably pull it off without even booking an overnight stay somewhere, depending on where you're starting from. In Carbondale, Illinois, the eclipse starts at 1242 p.m., peaks just after 2 p.m. Now, wait, if I do that, I'll get back too late for central time. Maybe I feel a cold coming on very slowly. (laughs) Space news you can use. This is central time. You're listening to Central Time. I'm Rob Ferrett. The decline of local news outlets around Wisconsin and around the United States is a topic we've covered many times over the years here on Central Time. According to Northwestern University's Local News Initiative and its State of Local News 2023 report, the U.S. has lost more than 2,900 newspapers since 2005. That's closing in on a third of them gone. Some Wisconsin state lawmakers are among those trying to help reverse that trend. They think putting some public support and some public money behind local journalism is one way to do it. We'll talk to a sponsor of some of that legislation and then hear from an advocate for local journalism. And you can join in at 800-642-1234. Do you see a loss of local news in your community and its impact where you live? Has a local newspaper closed in your area in the last 10, 15 years? How do you feel about that loss? Do you have local TV or newspapers that are thriving where you are? Join in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234 or email ideas at WPR.org. Jimmy Anderson is a Democrat representing Wisconsin's 47th Assembly District, which includes Fitchburg. He's a co-sponsor of three bills aimed at strengthening local news outlets in Wisconsin. Representative Anderson, thanks for joining us today.
7: Thank you so much for having me.
0: What led you to want to tackle this issue of uh, local journalism and, and news deserts in some places?
7: Yeah, it, it's an interesting topic. And I think I, I began to see the connection between kind of the loss of uh, our civility and sometimes the our ability to communicate uh, in our democracy. And I saw it tied a lot to the ways in which people were getting um, un, unhealthy news information, just having unhealthy news diets. And I thought, what could be the best way to try to cure some of that? And I thought, you know, making sure that their local newspapers and local media sources Um, are healthy and thriving and try to think of ways to bolster that.
0: And I understand uh, one of your sources of inspiration comes from the state of New Jersey, where they have something called the Civic Information Consortium. Tell us a little bit about that and uh, how it inspired some of the legislation here in Wisconsin.
7: Yeah, when I was working with my staff, we kind of looked around the country and said, you know, what are the states that are doing the best and what are they doing to try to support local news? Uh, New Jersey's uh, Civic Information Consortium, which is uh, one of the three bills that I uh, introduced here at Wisconsin. Um, basically, it brings together um, people in the community, journalists, professors, uh, legislators, uh, brings them all together and uh, basically provides a source of funding that they would distribute to uh, various entities that are doing interesting local news uh, projects. It could be something like a podcast. It could be supporting a local newspaper. Um, as long as it's increasing... Um, Like media, good healthy media in their communities, it's something the consortium would want to support.
0: Now, someone might hear that and say, well, I trust some media outlets, but not others for one reason or another. Uh, How do you see getting consensus, assuming this thing passed uh, and became a reality, getting consensus on what is something worth supporting with with these state-funded grants
7: in effect? And that's why it's so important that we bring together people from all over the, the spectrum when it comes to Um, media sources. And so uh, much in the same way that it's difficult sometimes to make good legislation by bringing together a lot of different people with different ideas, it's important to have all those perspectives because in the end, you'll end up with something close to consensus and hopefully uh, with the uh, information consortium, being able to come to at least some of an agreement as to what is going to be good for their individual communities.
0: We're talking to State Representative Jimmy Anderson, looking at legislation he's co-sponsoring aimed at boosting local journalism here in the state. You can join in at 800-642-1234 with your questions. Maybe your experiences. Have you seen a decline in coverage of your local city council, say, your local school board, local businesses, things like that? Do you think it's bad for your community? 800-642-1234. So that idea of an information consortium is one. I'll bill your work on, as you mentioned. Another is a state-funded journalism fellowship. How would that one uh, work, and how would you target it toward local journalism? Yes,
7: yeah, so this one is basically uh, anybody that's a UW student uh, all throughout the, and throughout the entire UW system. Uh, they would basically get a, um, a $40,000 stipend in order for them to go and work at one of their uh, local newspapers. And um, This would basically give them a jumpstart on their career in journalism, but also help alleviate um, some of those uh, costs at the the local newspapers of being able to hire journalists. So I think it's a really great win-win for both the young student and for the place where they decide to go and work.
0: And then another bill would create state tax credits for people who are newspaper subscribers. Uh, Talk a little bit about uh, how that would work and the impact you hope it could have.
7: Yeah. So basically, as long as you're subscribing to a local Wisconsin newspaper, you'd be able to get a 50 percent uh, tax rebate uh, on your subscription. And so I think uh, anything that we can do to incentivize people to read um, their local newspapers is something that I think the state should be supporting. And so I think this is a really great idea to get people to you know join and, and get those subscriptions up.
0: Now, for some people, they might say that would be great. 20 years ago, that local newspaper has been gone all that time. I'd have to go to the nearest, you know, larger city and subscribe. Uh, I mean, is this something you think could incentivize resurrection of some uh, papers or new ones in communities that don't have them?
7: That's exactly it. That's what we're hoping that what would end up happening. I understand that, like I said, we've seen consolidation. We've seen a lot of newspapers shuttering. Um, But, you know, if a local community sees a large uptick or desire to have more media in their area, this could definitely incentivize more newspapers to open up in those communities.
0: Now, I could see somebody gaming the system for a couple of these different things, uh, saying, "Okay, I'm going to come up with a a partisan uh, news uh, outlet here one way or the other. Uh, I'm going to print it as a newspaper. It's going to look just like a local journalism uh, outfit I assume that's not the kind of thing you're aiming for. How do you make sure that doesn't uh, take advantage of the programs you're hoping to create?
7: Yeah, that was one of the things that I was struggling with because there's a lot of, you know, really great online sources of information. There's also a lot of terrible ones. What I didn't want is for, uh, for example, someone like uh, Alex Jones and his Infowars nonsense being able to, Uh, game the system. So we specifically use the definition of newspapers that's in our Wisconsin statutes. That's actually incredibly narrow. Um, While this may limit the ability of some local papers to take advantage of this, I thought it was important for the very reason that you brought up that we wouldn't want to encourage people to try to game the system or to try to, um, you know, use unhealthy news sources to take advantage of this tax rebate.
0: Now, you've got a couple co-sponsors on this legislation. Uh, Last I looked, they were just Democrats. Republicans have a majority in both chambers. How do you pitch this to Republicans who you would need uh, to make this thing a reality?
7: So we did manage to get uh, at least one Republican to join on for the tax rebate and for the journalism fellowship program. Uh, We're very excited about that. Um, You know, we just introduced this for the first time this session. Uh, like any good piece of legislation, it's going to take time, and I'm going to be um, going to my Republican colleagues. Many of them live in rural areas where they've seen significant declines in local news. And it's not just the fact that these are, you know, reporters talking about important issues like what's happening in their uh, school boards or what's happening in their local governments. You know, you also need to be made aware if there's going to be a Fourth of July festival, if there's yard sales that are happening. These are, you know, the other things that our, uh, newspapers do that are incredibly important to creating a cohesive community. And so I think that I can go to them and tell them, you guys need more news in your area. This is a great way in order to make that happen.
0: Representative Anderson, we'll leave it there. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Jimmy Anderson is a Democrat representing Wisconsin's 47th Assembly District. We talked to him about a series of bills he's co-sponsoring in the legislature that aim to improve the Quality, quantity, and availability of local news in Wisconsin. Coming up, we'll hear from the head of a national organization focused on rebuilding the local news landscape around the country. You can join in at 800-642-1234. Do you have questions about uh the trends in local news coverage in newspapers closing in smaller communities in particular and if you have an experience with this you used to have a paper that would cover those local meetings and would post those yard sales and things like that do you miss it do you wish something like it could come back have you found something online that does the same job for you join in at 800 642 1234 that's 800-642-1234. You can also email ideas at WPR.org. We'll pick up the conversation coming up on Central Time. You're listening to Central Time. I'm Rob Ferrett. We continue our talk about improving the local news landscape here in Wisconsin and around the country. Steve Waldman is founder and president of the Rebuild Local News Coalition and co-founder and former president of Report for America. You could join in at 800-642-1234. By the way, if you have solutions uh, for a lack of local news, ideas that might help, an experience to share where you used to have great local coverage and there's less of it or maybe an outlet shut down completely, maybe one you worked for. Join in at 800-642-1234. Steve, thanks a lot for joining us today.
5: Oh, my pleasure. It's a great, important topic. Thank you for doing it.
0: I gave a couple kind of broad statistics right at the outset before we talked to Representative Anderson there. Can you give us a sense of how bad this loss of local news outlets uh, really
5: is around the country? It's a total catastrophe. It's really almost hard to get one's head around how big this is. There's been about an 82% drop in revenue to newspapers over two decades, and that led to almost a two-thirds loss of reporters around the country. And so thousands of newspapers are shut down. On average, two and a half newspapers are closing in America every week. And the consequences are just very severe and, and multiple. You know, it's there's all sorts of evidence that when you don't have local news, you have more corruption you have higher taxes, you have more pollution, uh, you have less information about who to vote for, and, and you even have more polarization and misinformation. And that that's because when you have a vacuum of information, like the vacuum that's created by the decline of local news, the vacuum gets filled. and And in this case, it's getting filled by national news or social media and misinformation. So it really, connects as a crisis to the whole sort of unraveling of American communities. And as you and and Representative Anderson noted, it is actually particularly severe in rural areas where uh, many of the weekly newspapers that used to serve them have have gone away.
0: I want to dig into uh, the first thing you gave on that list there when you started getting consequences. The costs to communities, and and you've given examples in various outlets over the years, and I've seen different studies, when local news disappears, uh, local governments uh, end up being more expensive. Talk about some of the connections there.
5: Yeah, it's kind of, a, there was an amazing study that showed that bond ratings uh, were worse in communities after the local news went away. And it kind of makes sense when you think about it. There's no one's mining the store So government tends to become less effective and less efficient. It was fascinating that it was so dramatic that it showed up statistically and that that even rippled through to those areas ending up having to have higher taxes because to make up for the waste that they have, they have to bring in more revenue.
0: Some people might say, okay, yes, I wish we had more local news, but is is government, uh, whether it's state or federal, is government intervention the way to accomplish that?
5: Uh, is it? Well, first of all, I think that the questions, concerns about the government role are very legitimate. Like, you could totally do this in a very bad way that would involve, you know, giving the government tools to manipulate the media or favor different media, so It is really important how you do it. But, you know, there are ways of doing it that preserve editorial independence. And the three ideas that Representative Anderson came up with, I think, all meet that test. And there are some others that do as well that we can talk about also. And the, the other thing I would say is that, you know, this isn't actually a new idea, the idea of government supporting the media. There's been government support for the media for a long time. In fact, one of the first big social programs that the founding fathers came up with was a massive subsidy for newspapers in the form of cheap postal rates, but it was really big. And in modern dollars, it would be about $40 billion a year, like the size of the NASA budget. So again, it just goes to the point of like, it's really not so much a, should the government be involved or not? It's, can it be done in a safe way? And, you know, there are fortunately examples of how to do it in a way that are First Amendment friendly. And I think we are just at the point where we need to, because the this, this severity of the crisis is just so intense right now.
0: I want to look at some of the proposals. Now we heard Representative Anderson talking about the idea of tax credits for newspaper subscribers. I think some legislation is approached, approached it in a different way. Uh, tax credits, I think, to advertisers who support local media. What do you think of that idea of, of tax incentives? Is this an effective way to help?
5: Yeah, the potential advantage of tax advantages, tax credits, is that it is kind of more neutral. You don't have government officials sitting around deciding, you know, which which news organization is meritorious. You have a simple set of rules that uh consumers or in the in the other case advertisers uh, meet or don't meet. And that's how you get it. And it's an entitlement. And so entitlements also tend to be a bit more generous. Yeah, the other idea that you mentioned, which I also like, is uh, also proposed by uh, a, a Wisconsin representative named Todd Novak, a Republican, and his bill would uh, provide tax credits for small businesses that advertise in local news. And it's really a nice kind of compliment to the A proposal to have consumers get a subsidy uh, for helping for subscribing to local news. In a way, those are the two revenue streams, right? So if you amplify the consumers' buying power and amplify the small businesses' buying power, and they both are sort of market oriented in a way, and that you know the consumer can decide in the subscription credit under this proposal to subscribe to whoever they want, as long as they fit the definitions of newspaper. Um, And so, you know, you can't be accused of this being the government favoring some media over other types of media because it's up to the consumer. Or in the case of uh, Representative Novak's bill, it's up to the small businesses where they want to put their advertising. Talking to Steve Waldman with the Rebuild
0: Local News Coalition, looking at the decline in the amount of coverage, the amount of outlets covering local news, especially in smaller communities around the country. Ideas to help rebuild that local news coverage. Still time for you to join in at 800-642-1234. We've talked to some about uh, government support for local news. What else do you see on the landscape? I know there are uh, nonprofit organizations, lots of them, uh, Wisconsin Watch here in Wisconsin, ProPublica Nationwide. Do you see that as another possibility, another possible model to help boost local news
5: coverage? Absolutely. And, And the government support should lean into helping the innovation. Like, you know, I think of the government as the third piece of the puzzle and maybe not even the most important one, but the first two being there needs to continue to be innovation among the news organizations, both to generate revenue and also to better serve their communities. Second, there needs to be a bigger role for philanthropy, big, big and small. You know, At the end of the day, community media is not gonna survive without the support of the community. And that used to be you know, just subscriptions and advertising, but now you can also donate to, uh, to news organizations like Wisconsin Watch that, that you like. And then the third element is the, uh, is the government support. And ideally you wanna try to create government policies that reinforce the positive forces that are going on in the market uh, or among uh, consumers. And I think these ideas do. The, the one other idea that is pretty popular out there um, is a uh, employment credit. So the idea there is, you you have a tax credit for news organizations that hire or retain local reporters, and you know what I like about it is is like the fellowship program in uh, Representative Anderson's package, it goes right at the heart of the issue, which is re- reporting. You know, there's none of us should get wedded to a particular model of of news delivery, like where. Public policy shouldn't be about propping up newspapers or promoting websites or, you know, it's going to keep evolving how we get our news, how it's distributed is going to keep evolving and and that's as it should. The real thing to keep an eye out is, are there reporters in the community watching the school board, watching the, you know, city council, covering high school sports, the theater, all those things. Um, You need the reporters and if you have that Uh, the the distribution mechanisms will take care of themselves.
0: Now, I'm thinking about the idea of a smaller city in Wisconsin, say 5,000-ish residents. Do you see a sustainable model, you mentioned looking at revenue, that could sustain a constantly operating news outlet uh, to do these things for a community that size, given that people struggle sometimes even with a nationwide audience to make money in journalism?
5: Yeah, those are the hardest cases. I mean, all the studies that have looked at this on a national level have said that the toughest cases are smaller towns and also towns with declining populations. And it's because what you said, it's a matter of scale. You know, a larger larger place can kind of outrun the falling advertising rates that we're seeing by having lots and lots of readers. There's just only so many people who are going to, you know, want to know about the... uh, school board meeting in mineral point. And it's just uh, those are the areas where a a subsidy uh, of some sort may really be most especially necessary. In our last minute or so,
0: Steve, the magic wand question, what one policy would you want to see, say, at the federal level uh, to help strengthen local news?
5: Ooh, if politics was no uh, consideration, if I could really just (laughs) wave the wand I think I would do the employment tax credit it's a very substantial proposal it would directly aid uh, news organizations um, and incentivize them hiring local reporters which is the uh, the key to it so I think that would be the one if I if I if I had to pick only one but you know a lot of these different ideas kind of complement each other and go at the problem from different angles so hopefully we'll be able to do multiple Steve, we'll leave it there. Thanks again for joining us today. Thank you for having me and for, uh, for covering this issue.
0: Steve Waldman is founder and president of the Rebuild Local News Coalition. Talk to him today about how policymakers at the state and national levels can help restore local journalism and better support it going forward. Earlier, we heard from State Representative Jimmy Anderson, who's one of the three state lawmakers co-sponsoring a series of bills aimed at helping the local news desert situation in Wisconsin. Coming up tomorrow on Central Time. Conflict can be a natural part of any relationship, and if you do it right, it can make their relationship stronger. Learn more from the new book, Fight Right. And on Food Friday, the author of the cookbook, Pasta, every day joins the show. That more coming up tomorrow here on Central Time.